Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Now, a word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by Occupy Medical. Free integrated healthcare for all, Sundays 12 to 4 in downtown Eugene, Oregon. We've all heard of medicinal mushrooms, but as herbalists explore deeper into the field of mycology, we're finding the world of fungi has many layers of healing to offer. Today, we're talking with Peter McCoy, author of Radical Mycology, a treatise of seeing and working with fungi about mushroom medicine for body, mind, and soul. Now, here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Welcome back, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be back. I'm excited to talk about medicinal mushrooms today and about mushroom medicine. Mushroom medicine is the best, most definitely. Yeah, me too. I can't talk enough about them. (laughs) Yeah, well, get us started. Tell us Uh, about your, your experience with it. Okay, let's let's start out with what we're all familiar with. Mushrooms themselves, like the reishis, oysters, turkey tails. Mm -hmm. The fruiting bodies. The fruiting bodies. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I think a nice way to to think about this is that, first of all, to understand that that a mushroom is sort of like the apple on the tree and that the rest of the tree, the leaves, the branches, the trunk, the roots, is what's known as a mycelial network. It's really the bulk of the fungus is this this massive mycelium, massive fungal tissue. The, the mushroom only pops up, as we know, you know, a couple of weeks out of the year. So the mycelium is really where most of the, the life happens, most of the activity, the, the eating, the assessing the environment. And actually a lot of compounds, medicinal compounds, are produced by the mycelium. It actually produces a lot of antibiotics, antivirals, antifungal compounds to defend itself. It doesn't have a skin. It's only one cell thick. So it swims in a bath of its own healing protection and because fungal biology is sort of similar to ours and also because the things that attack fungi are many of the same things that attack us, the same compounds that fungi produce to defend themselves work on our bodies just the same to help um, lower um, infection rates. And beyond that, many other uh, actions occur, such as immune system support and things like that. So the distinction there is the mycelium and the mushroom. Both can produce compounds, medicinal compounds, um, sometimes they'll, they'll produce the same. Sometimes the mycelium only produces one of these compounds and sometimes only the mushroom produces the compound. And sometimes even then the spores of the mushroom will have unique medicinal compounds that are not found elsewhere. So those are the different parts. Um, and when we go into the woods or we go into the store, pretty much every single mushroom we see is likely going to have some sort of healing property, whether it's simply just antimicrobial properties, as I've just described, um, or something more profound and potent beyond that. So a lot of the, the mushrooms we focus on today that we know a lot about, especially in the medicinal world, like reishi and turkey tail, shiitake, maitake, cordyceps, things like this, our knowledge, our awareness of their medicinal potency largely comes from their ancestral uh, history and their well-documented use in the East for thousands of years. And People many years ago found out through trial and error, or however they discovered medicines back then, that these fungi are the among the most potent, and they gained higher status, despite the fact that, in my opinion, all fungi have healing properties. 
So these are the ones that we focus on today, and that's where a lot of the peer review research is now backing up all the anecdotal stuff. Um, and the, the breakdown is primarily seems to be in the fact that all mushrooms carry uh, heavyweight sugars in their cell walls. Um, these sugars come in all shapes and sizes, um, although they have a more or less basic foundational structure. Both simple sh- sugars and complex sugars. Well, no, they're they're large sugars, so okay. it's not a simple. It's not simple like table sugar. It's a very uh, very heavy polysaccharide. Um, it's a unique type. It's actually technically called a one three beta glucan, and it forms a spiral uh, formation. It's actually similar in shape to our DNA, which is quite interesting. Um, but it's they're very large, very heavy weight sugars compared to fructose, like the the, fr- the sugar fruit. Uh, excuse me, the sugar and fruit. Um, but these heavyweight polysaccharides, um, some of them, for whatever, just based on their chemical structure, essentially, uh, stimulate different aspects of our innate immune system. There are different types of white blood cells. And thus, they, they basically help us be healthier. They help stimulate our immune system. That's very well studied, well appreciated. Different fungi, different species produce different sugars, um, but they all produce you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands. It's, I've never seen a number placed on it. Those sugars are water-soluble, so we extract them with water. And then on the other hand, uh, many different mushrooms, especially the harder and woodier mushrooms like reishi, turkey tail, these things that are more tough, not so edible, uh, they often produce terpenoids, more alcohol-soluble constituents that are kind of anti-inflammatory, soothing to the body, but can also have antiviral properties, um, cancer-inhibiting properties, many other beneficial actions on the body, um, you know, that we can, we can, of course, further detail. So it would make sense to do like a mushroom soup or like a mushroom tea and then take the, um, the mark, the mushroom bodies, the non-liquid part, and then maybe do like an alcohol tincture style to further extract. Yeah. Well, if you wanted to do a, uh, the best sort of double extract, you would actually do the tincture first because those alcohol soluble components are usually pretty volatile. So you don't want to do use heat first. Okay, so you they'll do, disappear. Yeah. So you use do the tincture first. Um, usually, you know, extend one, say six weeks just because they have really tough, uh, tissue that the, the, all these compounds, many of them are locked up in the cell wall or behind the cell wall of fungus. And that cell wall is made out of chitin, the same compound that makes up lobster shells and insect exoskeletons. So it's pretty tough. So <laughs> down, the alcohol breaks that down, um, and it helps draw out these these compounds. Once it's once the tincture has been made, then yeah, you strain the mark, and then you can throw it in your soup um, or make a tea out of it. And then you'd actually then that would pull out the sugars, and then you actually the the common practice is to take that um, decoction and, and simmer it down, concentrate it and then combine the two to get that double extra. How do those constituents hold up to dehydration? Pretty well. The, the sugars are actually, I mean, this is, this, you know, uh, gets into just some of the wonderful properties about the, the medicinal qualities of fungi. They're so resilient and so shelf-stable, especially the sugars. They're highly heat-resistant. Um, you know, they can resist a lot of chemical uh, influences, and they're very shelf-stable. Um a lot of the best, some of the best products actually, we mentioned this, we talked about this a little bit in the last interview, um, is that the the sugars are, are really what do the work and the better products that you can buy or that are actually more commonly made in the East are not made with 
say powdered mycelium, which is what a lot of the products we, we buy today in the stores in North America. But actually, they'll take the, the fungus, whether it's mycelium, and often it is mycelium because it's so cheap and easy to grow it, um, and or mushrooms, and they'll make a strong, huge, huge batch of tea, giant thousands of gallons, and then they'll actually dehydrate that down to the pure sugars that have been extracted. And then now that those sugars are actually extracted out of the chitin, it's bioavailable, and you can encapsulate that or blend it into different products. And that's much better for you, much more bioavailable than just powdered up mycelium because, again, you haven't actually extracted it. The chitin might still be binding it up, and even if you take that powder, you might not be getting all the medicinal quality. So rather than just stick the whole thing in the blender, you're brewing it up and then extracting out the mark from that and then dehydrating the brew? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one route. Um, yeah, and in my book, I detail a number of different routes, uh, but in essence, that is certainly one. That's certainly one of the better ones, and it's, it's a very common practice, again, in, in China and Asia. Um, so you essentially end up with, and you don't necessarily have to, I mean, you could fully dehydrate it, that, of course, at home or even in a small, you know, little uh, kitchen or something like that will we'll take a lot of energy to dehydrate a lot of tea down. Usually you just end up, yeah. you can end up with like a syrup, um, and that that works just as well, and it's very shelf-stable. Um, yeah, certainly. Makes sense. you put a lot of uh, energy into describing the processes very, very, very well. Yeah. yeah, and at various levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, people that are interested in that, this would be a good time to say, just look at the book, and it'll become abundantly clear after you turn a few pages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the whole the whole book um, is really it's a progressive. You know, you get deeper and deeper into you know more and more complex topics. I try to make it all intelligible, even towards the end. Um, and same with each chapter. Each chapter starts at the foundation and builds. So, uh, starting learning just those, those distinctions, what the compounds are, a little little basic con- overview of the chemistry, and then there's many ways to extract these things. Um, some are more complex, take a little bit more time, maybe some better equipment. But you're essentially, but what you end up is just a more potent, more refined product. But even the simpler products um, work as well. Right. So someone like me who has access to oyster mushrooms and shiitakes right at the grocery, if I wanted to give it a try, I could go pick some up and I could use these processes to make my own oyster shiitake mushroom syrup if I wanted. Oh, certainly. And... and um, and, and as you were saying before, I mean, you know, throwing, getting fungi involved into all our foods and medicines is just a great way to become familiar and comfortable with them and also to get that, that uh, consistent uh, medicinal input. So, you know, shiitake, one of the things there that some people think about is that the, the stem of shiitake and oysters is often pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, you can eat it, but it's usually pretty chewy and not so, not as delicious as the cap. So that's a great way to make it, you can make a tea out of that. Um, or throw it in your soup, and it'll extract all these medicinal sugars, and you're still getting a good good use out of it. Yeah, for me, that's awesome to hear because now I have justification for what I've been doing all these years. So I take those stems and I stick them in the freezer until I'm making some chicken broth or beef broth or vegetable broth, and I throw all of them in there, and I like cook for a couple hours. See, she's just looking for reasons to justify how cheap she is. So thank you for that. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not a great use. I mean, that's, it's just medicine waiting to be consumed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I want to dive deeper now. 
you throughout the book, you have a philosophy that fungi are a part of everything. I'd really like to hear more about how you envision the fungi healing the, through the whole planet, the many layers. No, that's deep. This is deep. <laughs> Go for it, Peter. <laughs> no intimidation here. Not a problem. Not a problem. Um, I think that I think something that just you know sets a foundation to the concept is is the fact that uh, based on all of our current evidence, it truly seems that fungi um, were the earliest multicellular organisms to uh, evolve on the planet. And that means that plants and animals directly descended from fungi. Fungi are our greatest ancestors. And I detail that uh, throughout the book, or in, in a section of the book, rather. But if we take that just for what it is as a concept, um, I think that speaks to some great you know, wisdom that, that they're holding on to. And as they've evolved over the years, they essentially, from the earliest days of the Earth, built the soils of the planet, helped all the other organisms survive, and in that time developed intimate and complex and deep symbiotic relationships with all of life. Um, I think I said in the last interview that some of these relationships we've studied today quite well, many and most of them we hardly know anything about. And so, but the ones that we do know about pretty much in my opinion, point to this commonality that fungi are everywhere. They fill every, almost fill every organism or they have some sort of relationship with an organism pretty, pretty intimate and almost, um, necessary one for that other organism's survival. And wherever they are, they really bring in health and healing and regeneration and abundance and greater complexity to, to the environment that they are helping build. So we can see that in so many different ways. In the soil, fungi permeate the soil. Up to a third of, of the carbon in the soil is fungal mycelium. So it's this huge amount of mycelium that fills the the forests that are not disturbed and the, even deserts and uh, fields, any habitat. Uh, at the bottom of the ocean, there's a recent paper that just came out a couple weeks ago where they, they now think that fungi literally permeate the entire ocean floor, which is the largest habitat in the world, and they're at the foundation of all nutrient cycling in the whole ocean, which, of course, ripples up to everything else. So that they're at the foundation. They're literally at the bottom of the entire food chain, but also sort of at the top of it. They are the great connectors bridging life and death, um, in a way that I think is not necessarily uh, dark, but in a way that is much like a rebirthing. And they're the constantly the, the creators of life and somebody who's carrying it forward and ensuring great succession and, and evolution. You have so a have wonderful a quote on that. It's on page 53. It's short, so I'll just read it. Quote, at the end of every life, a doorway opens, exposing a mycelial bridge toward another birth. The fungal fungi, the fungi, carry life across this dark abyss of death and expose each form to energy, each form of energy to another undulation in the endless waves of nature. End quote. That's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I also saw something recently that an Aust- off the Australian reef, they found a creature that's like a mushroom that they had, no one had ever seen before. It's, you can see through it, except that it has an animal-like digestive system. So it's not a mushroom. It's not an animal. It's what? They, we still, we just, we don't even know what it is. And that's a recent, you know, uh, discovery. We think we know everything. And here's some link in between life forms. That's just the beginning. 
as our technology improves, we're going to find more and more out about all of these mushroom fungal creatures and the blend between life that we thought there was such hard walls between them, but there really isn't. Right. I mean, if we, we can see that really clearly with plants, I mean, uh, plant all plants today, they used to say 90 to 95%. Now they say a hundred percent of all plants are literally permeated with fungal mycelium throughout their entirety. So what we are looking at when we look at any plant is a complex community. And it's not just say one fungus permeating that plant. It's literally hundreds of trillions of individual, uh, little colonies, little clusters of my son will be quilting this plant together, stitching it together to create a completely unique assemblage, uh, a unique individual. And those fungi are, are we, we don't know a ton about them. They're called inophytes. They're sort of the least studied, uh, one of the least studied niches, but they certainly are providing all kinds of drought and disease resistance, um, quite possibly producing the medicinal constituents in plants, or at least contributing to the, the metabolic process that leads to the production of those compounds. Um, and uh, along the way, assisting the whole plant's growth, perhaps influencing other aspects of its development, perhaps over many eons, the evolutionary flow. Of course, we can't really study that. Um, you know, it's quite complex when we think about that. Then we think about how at the roots there are mycorrhizae that are connecting all plants together, uh, and not just plants of the same species, but dozens, hundreds of different species in a forest could be connected by one common mycelial network and that fungus is distributing nutrients, distributing communication signals between the plants, helping them know when to defend themselves, and at the same time feeding the soil, um, digesting rock, and making available nutrients, something that most other organisms can't do, and providing that in dosed amounts so that there's no waste and that there's this consistent supply. And then when things die, we have the fungi that, that decompose that material, creating the new life, um, as I sort of say in that quote. And then the, the bugs eat it, and the bugs, their, their guts are filled with, with fungi that help them digest these things. Um, they form really intimate relationships, all many bugs, it seems, uh, especially like a great example are the beetles. The beetles are the largest and most successful group of insects in the world. They all have a, an incredible diversity and complex array of yeasts in their gut that help them eat all the kinds of stuff that beetles eat. Um, so, and even in our own bodies, we, we have fungal communities in our mouths, in our guts, in our lungs, in the birth canal. Um, these things. I mean, even on our skin, we're covered. Life, you know, without, there's a great quote. Um, I forget who said it actually, but essentially that you, you can imagine a world without um, macroscopic organisms, but you can't imagine one without the microbes. I mean, everything else is just icing on the cake. The microbes do so much, but it's, but I think, the bacteria do a lot, and that's usually what people are thinking about when they talk about microbes. But in so many ways, fungi do so much that, that nothing else does. They they digest uh, rock, as I've said, which um, many things can't do. Some bacteria can solubilize certain rocks, but fungi have these powerful enzymes and acids. They are responsible for 90% of all decomposition, which is at the foundation of all life cycles. Again, regenerating, turning, turning bridging, bridging and recomposing life into something new. Um, and even the, the parasites, what we can commonly quote-unquote call parasites, it's not the right perspective to have. I, I call these fungi in my book the vocal fungi. I think what they're helping us recognize is disturbance and then imbalances in our environment. And what they ultimately do is on geological timescales, which are larger than human timescales, reset the balances and help 
maintain overall um, homeostasis or, or at least uh, success, appropriate successional stages that lead to uh, healthier habitats than, say, what a, what a monocrop will do to an environment, which is often deplete it and create holes um, that naturally lead to fungi doing what they do, which is shaking things up, um, clearing out these unnatural assemblies of plants and leading towards greater communities, stronger communities that are highly connected um, and quite complex. It's so, so deep. So, <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about it, I thought about the beginning, like where the fossil fuels on our earth come from and the idea that fungi working on a time frame much larger than ours moved trees or plants, the beings that were there from just piling up, turned them into fossil fuels and covered them with the soil to bring new life. You know, that whole, that whole evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I find compelling about it is it, it's the things that we know that's interesting, but more importantly, the things that we don't know, that's what keeps me going. You know, there's this massive world out there, a galaxy that has yet to be discovered. And, and this book opened up a few more avenues to worlds I didn't even know were out there. I love the idea that there's probably like some space fungi aliens watching us from far away. They sent their people <laughs> down, populate the earth, see what happens. Exactly. Here we are. Move aside, <laughs> lizard people. <laughs> hey, you proposed, didn't you, Peter, a idea of possible lynching from outer space starting life on Earth? Space lichen starting from yeah the, yeah huh okay. <laughs> it's not a, I mean, it's not my my original idea. It's, it's there's actually been a lot of um, research into the concept of uh, what's known as panspermia. The the foundational argument is that DNA and proteins are so complex, and let alone the production of of a functional cell, that it's really hard essentially beyond statistical probability that life just spontaneously occurred in a primordial soup. So it's pretty contentious, of course. Um, so people have tried to say, well, if life didn't arise in the early earth, then maybe it landed here from somewhere else. So then of course that leads to the question of, well, where did that life come from? But that being what it is, um, there has been interesting research by astrobiologists basically slamming, recreating a, a comma a meteorite impact, recreating the conditions of Mars um, really recreating the conditions of an asteroid and showing that lichens, molds, spores can all survive these conditions for seemingly an indefinite amount of time, leading to the idea that if a lichen or something like a lichen landed on the early Earth, it was sort of the perfect thing to start all of life. It contains plant cells, fungal cells, and bacteria. So. And water bears. And water bears, yep. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I love the idea in part just because it's contentious. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. We are getting ready to start a new affiliate program. We've never done anything like this before, have we, Patrick? Not like this. Not like this. But this para program really attracted me because its primary person is Rosalie de la, de la Forette. Well, how do you know her? I found her through Facebook. I've been watching her on Facebook and I think Instagram as well. She's an herbalist who comes from the Eastern approach or the energetic approach. She studied under Michael Tierra, for instance, and under, um, I think it's Dr. Kalsa. 
KP Kulsa. And she's got other ones, Jim McDonald, other well-known herbalists that she's studied with. And she's, she approaches it from that perspective. So she includes things, the senses as part of deciding which herbs are best for which person. Um, so the program that she's getting started to run running now that we're going to be, we're selling essentially is called taste of herbs. And when does that, that program really start? That program is starting on Wednesday, the 21st of September, which is today. today actually. Yeah. And if you go over, if you follow, hopefully you'll follow our affiliate affiliate links. So we get credit with them for it, but you check out learningherbs.com and they've got a, um, called the herbal compass which is like a flavor wheel that helps match up herbal energetics um western style i believe with the tastes and flavors that are you'll notice when you're trying different herbs it can help you better match up which herbs are best for you which are best for your family your friends whomever so so using your senses to learn a little bit more than just reading it in a book like you were to taste an apple it's no matter what you read until you taste the apple, you really don't know what it tastes like. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like my own experience with essential oils has been that actually smelling them makes a big difference in understanding how they work. The same thing works with foods and herbs of all sorts. So taking the time to taste the different flavors makes it'll make a difference. Some people, I know one person in particular who really needs a lot of sour in his diet. It's a really important flavor for him. Some of the complaints that he has physically, like being tired, for instance, might be the exact same ones that I have. But for me, sour isn't the important one. Bitter is a much more important flavor for my own constitution. But we might have the exact same complaint of being tired, for instance. You know. Oh, that's interesting. So they can find a link to they, these web to the to this program that we're mentioning. On our show notes, yes, at um, thepracticalherbalist.com slash, I think, believe it's Real Herbalism Radio. Yes. They'll probably see it on our Facebook page. Yep. And if they're a subscriber to our newsletter, they'll probably see it there too. Yeah. And if you want to make sure that you're on the list to get the special extra edition, if you will, of subscribers, of um, information that we're sending out through email, make sure you not only get on our list, our newsletter list as soon as possible, but also do some clicking. Because the people that we've, we're going to use the the segment of people that do the most that are most often active, right? Um, the people that click through in our newsletters will be the ones that will get the special promos and the special abilities to get into this really neat program. Yeah, there's all kinds of neat stuff coming up over the next week and a half. So, want to check in? Yep, take a look for it. And what again? The name again? What is the name that they're looking for again? The affiliate link that we're doing. The, the name of the company is learningherbs.com and the program that we're promoting is Taste of Herbs. Today we're talking with Peter McCoy, author of Radical Mycology. And we're moving from space lynchings, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Let's talk about some of the systems that we can change, the systems of our thinking that we can change by diving deeper into respecting and recognizing the life of the fungi. Well, you're talking about maturity. What? Maturity? (laughs) (laughs) So wisdom that you can gather or has been gathered from learning about mushrooms. That's what we're talking about now. I think that's a good medicine. I mean, our culture needs to shift. 
where yes. you know we're seeing more and more problems with people environmental being our environment being damaged people are having a harder more and more wars more poverty more struggle and strife you know i see a lot of things that need to change and just by changing your perspective on the fungi i think you make some pretty radical shifts in the way you think about the rest of the world wow am i have at peter well i i fully agree i mean um, you know, a, a part of what's come along with me studying mycology over the years and really studying, in essence, mycelial networks is is understanding how and seeing how these patterns that fungi naturally embody in their growth habits are reflected in so many aspects of life, whether it's physical uh, material or how nutrients are distributed in a forest or something like that to more abstract ideas of how information is exchanged how um, knowledge is passed down through generations and spreads around the world. Um, you know, these niched and networked patterns um, and branching patterns was known, were known as the Lee patterns in Taoist philosophy. And it was sort of seen as this embodiment of the Tao, that these asymmetrical branching sort of cracking forms was really what life was. And mycelium is that uh, very purely. And so, if we take that as sort of this uh, underlying theme of good systems, good good living structures, as opposed to something that is habitual or repetitive or you know uh, something you could predict, um, then there's a lot to learn about how human societies can be developed, how information can be formed, and how we can actually how we perhaps should structure our our thinking and our social relationships to more clearly embody these patterns of nature. So many things I talk about in the book is one shattering the, the institution or not necessarily shattering it because it does have its place, but challenging and finding alternatives that support the, the overwhelming emphasis on reductionist learning and the reductionist uh, studies of the environment of the world. Reductionism being the idea that we can understand everything by reducing it to the simplest parts and looking at those individual parts on their own. Um, that completely excludes the concepts of symbiosis, of the highly interdependent nature of all of life, which is our day-to-day awareness, and the fact that everything relates to everything else. And so you can't study things on their own without really looking at their, their large implications. Reductionism only goes so far and leaves a lot of things unanswered. So, so fungi, being if we have a mycelial mindset, we have to look at things systematically or rather in systems and embody what's known as systems thinking. Um, this is something that's embodied in permaculture practices and there's a whole you know, theory of, of systems um, that just says that everything is attached to everything else. This goes along with concepts in chaos theory where butterfly effect type of thing where we can't really understand how everything impacts everything else, which is sort of overwhelming, sort of beautiful, um, but also humbling at the same time. That for as much as humans think we have a control on the world and on our lives and everything, that ultimately at the end of the day, we don't. And that nature is you know, pretty powerful. And fungi give us that perspective. They give us that. They force us to have that moment of pause, to step back, and but at the same time, say, okay, what can we know, and how can we connect those things into something that is holistic that actually helps lead towards a greater conclusion and what are known as like emergent properties. When you draw in many new perspectives, many different types of people, often something unexpected arises out of that that was could have never been developed on their uh, when the parts were separated. And so this act of emergence is 
found in evolution. It's found in how fungi actually adapt to their environment quite, quite incredibly and spontaneously um, when they're unable to be highly connected and, and relatively uh, intact as a network. And so we can do that in our communities, of course, by having more common spaces, by bringing ourselves together in shared acts, you know, potlucks and, and block parties are easy examples of that. But even something grander, you know, if we want to think about uh, social organizations, um, but even in our thinking habits, you know, I think, again, going back to the, 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 some of the pitfalls of reductionism is the loss of the ability to think in systems. And in our schooling, we're often taught subjects as discrete units, as discrete factoids to memorize, as opposed to thinking holistically and putting everything into context and also relating it to the rest of our knowledge. Fungi help show us that, that we have to think broadly. We have to draw from the wealth of the human story to help find new solutions, new emergent properties to lead towards, you know, the next step of, of the, the saga we're laying down for the next seven generations. And I think that's something that's just increasingly, I mean, I studied sciences in school and got a lot out of it, certainly, but also, you know, it was always taught in this very fragmented way. Um, but when you go out and study fungi, it naturally leads you to not only studying chemistry, biology, and to some degree physics and these other sciences, you have to sort of, if you really want to understand fungi, naturally leads to everything else. But then beyond that, it naturally leads to just becoming an ecologist and fungi connect and touch everything. So it leads you to wanting to learn more about the plants, to learn more about the insects on one hand so that you can appreciate the fungi more, but then as sort of this coincidental outcome, you learning to appreciate all of life more. It's this really wonderful little uh, bait and switch or something that the fungi are pulling on you to lead you to integrating with life and then seeing yourself as a part of that uh, network, as a part of that rhythm and, um, you know, the, the fungi holding your hand and, and, and teaching you along the way. They're so tiny, they're these tiny teachers, but yet, and, and, you know, in the scope of the whole world, I mean, I'm huge compared to them. My world seems huge and overwhelming. And yet when I look at the lessons they're teaching, it's always just take one little step, just, just think a little broader and it makes it so much easier to change my mindset by looking at how they move and change things in the world. Yeah, taking the broader picture, you had spoken earlier about your favorite phylum, which was the glomeromycota. Okay, yeah, that was exactly what I was saying. Yeah, and I can completely understand with what you were talking about with this phylum, why that's so important to you. Can you talk a little bit about this phylum and, and how it interacts with the world? Well, I think the, yeah, the glomeromycota, they, they really do embody a lot of the stuff we've been talking about because um, they're, they're considered the most ecologically important of all, of all fungi. Um, but at the same time, we never see them. They're soil fungi. They don't produce mushrooms. And so they're completely, it's very easy to overlook them. Um, but what they do is they form the mycorrhizal root connecting symbiosis with 90 to 95% of all plants in the world and do all this nutrient exchange work that I've been describing. They're really more like the brains of the, the forest. There, there are mushroom forming fungi that form mycorrhizae, but they're much more limited. They only associate with, say, 3 to 5% of plants. So they're very, they're very uh, niched. The glomeromycota, though, those are the ones that are generalists and they'll, they'll hang out with everybody, make friends with everybody. And, like the internet. 
the internet. They're the internet, like the wires and the waves and the bits that carry all the important stuff everywhere. So the internet emergence in our life coincidence with our uh, mushroom interactions or not coincidence? Okay, let's let, let as we end up our interview a little bit here. I want to ask you about your favorite mushroom, mushroom, the fruiting mushroom. Uh, yeah, if I had to pick one mushroom, I usually say, I mean, I love them all. Don't get me wrong. But okay, you I, don't want to play favorites. You don't want anyone to be jealous. But just between I, us, yeah. <laughs> I do. I do hang out with turkey tail a good bit. Um, it's a pretty, it's a very beautiful mushroom. If, if folks don't know it, it's one of the most globally distributed mushrooms. Um, it's come, it's sort of this fan shaped rubbery shelf, smaller shelf, uh, fungus usually found on dead wood. Um, usually banded in colors, multiple colors and the colors could vary based on what it's growing off of sometimes quite striking colors. Um, but it's, so it's easy to identify, easy to find more or less. Um, at the same time, incredibly medicinal produces this compound PSK or Crestin that actually is produced by the mycelium, not, not so much by the fruit body. Um, but it's this potent immune stimulator. It's one of the most commonly prescribed chemotherapy adjuncts in the East. It's very, very potent for the immune system. So it's this great medicine, um, makes a wonderful tasting, sweet, delicious tea. Um, and is also a powerful remediator. It can break down all kinds of chemicals, has these powerful digestive abilities. It's one of the most studied remediative uh, mushrooms for for that. Um, And it's actually incredibly powerful for breaking down wood, so it's central to these ecological roles as well. Um, So it hits all these points. It's also just beautiful, and I don't know, it likes me, I think, so. Likes me. That's sweet. I have a friend that has overcome breast cancer, her second round of breast cancer. And one of the things that she used in addition to the chemotherapy uh, was turkey tail. Because, you know, breast, breast cancer, that particular cancer can metastasize not only in the breast, but in other parts in the body like the spine or organs or different things like that. It's really difficult to treat and it's difficult to get out of the body. Uh, surgery's not good enough. She, she considers the fact that she's still alive is because of turkey tail. That's the fungi. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I'm very grateful for the amount of information we have about this wonderful mushroom and the fact that it is everywhere. So, so but you're saying you're not really wanting to harvest the fruit itself, but the mycelium itself from the wood? Oh, no. No, I mean, the... The, the fruit body, the, the mushroom produces medicinal compounds as well, don't get me wrong. But um, as far as if you if you cultivate the mycelium, if you learn how to do that, just the mycelium on its own is also very potent medicine is sort of what I was saying there. So that's really nice for me. I'm a cultivator, so I don't necessarily have to fruit the mushroom to get the medicine. I can also just work with these the simpler mycelium. How do you get that out of the wood? Uh, well, you would take the mushroom home and then you would uh, clone it. It's kind of like uh, the, the, I always use the metaphor. It's kind of like grafting a tree or grafting like an apple tree is the idea. We basically taking a piece of the tissue and then you do some semi-technical 
stuff uh, to propagate it. And then basically a piece of that, the mushroom is actually just condensed mycelium. It's not different tissue. So if you cut a piece of it out, uh, put it on a Petri dish, it'll basically start to regenerate as pure mycelium. All mycelium is essentially uh, stem cells, just a giant network, network of stem cells. Any cell can reproduce the entire organism. Um, so you can easily clone it that way. And then once you get it growing, you can grow it on grains, uh, as I've sort of said, and then process that as food or medicine. He has a process in radical mycology. Oh, he has it written down. That's done. And it looks like it's not that much harder than brewing beer or propagating yeast for brewing beer from batch to batch. Right. So I'm I'm seriously thinking. Yeah, you're going to put it in grains? I'm thinking. That'd be ah. fun. Ah. What I really want to always try to emphasize to anybody that's new to this is that um, – the techniques, especially the ones that I emphasize that are, that are liquid based, um, as opposed, you know, without getting into the details, there's, there's new protocols that have developed really in the last couple years, um, on the internet that enable us to do a lot of cultivation stuff out of the lab and in the kitchen, you know, pretty easily. And if you apply those techniques and you follow those types of routes, which are the ones that I emphasize, you, you can grow all kinds of mushrooms and mycelium and all these things for next to nothing. And, technically or skill wise, it really is just on par with making a good homebrew. You know, you gotta get the right tools, you gotta kinda of bumble through it a couple of times. But once you get it down, it's really easy and it doesn't cost that much and you can do it while you're making dinner at the same time. I mean it doesn't have to be some some huge effort. Um yeah. I'll be trying it. Okay. The guy's gonna have to watch out. One more <laughs> shelf of things. One more science project. <laughs> But this is the fun stuff. It is. It absolutely is. All right. And you can do that in your closet and your wherever. You don't have to put it in a Sunday window like growing herbs. Yeah, that's the good thing about growing mushrooms is you can you grow them. You kind of need to grow them all the places that you don't grow anything else or at least don't grow, don't grow plants. And they don't need a lot of attention, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect for my little house. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Peter. This was a very interesting and and, uh, inspirational interview. And and I'm not going to promise that I'm going to mature thanks to this interview, but I will will put that on my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're reminding our listeners, if you want to find out more about uh, the Radical Mycology book and then the book tour that uh, Peter will be embarking on here, Uh, And also his Radical Mycology Convergence, which is an event that he hosts every year, then check out RadicalMycology.com. You can see a book link uh, there and also on the Practical Herbalist site. We have that. And please check out the RealHerbalismRadio.com show notes because we have links to a whole bunch of the things that he's talked about here, including his Amazon mycological project and the open source ecology. He's just got so much going on and, and we'll have those links there. So um, if you want to see our book for review on the practicalherbalist.com, go to our website for that. Please make sure that you follow us on Facebook, on Twitter and on Pinterest. Thank you, Peter. It was a delight. Yeah, thank you so much. It's wonderful. This show is brought to you by Occupy Medical, free integrated health care for all, Sundays 12 to 4 in downtown Eugene, Oregon. Visit their site at occupy-medical.org.